This is day six of the 2008 Idaho Bible School. Our second period teacher is Brother Anthony Whitehorn. His general topic is a life worth living. Today's topic is and in conclusion. Brother Anthony. Well, good morning, everybody. Great. Well, that's it then, isn't it? The cards have gone back in the box. The whistle's blown. Idlewild Bible School has finished. That's it. And it's, uh, you know, it's very much like our lives, as I said on the very first day. All made up of little bits, but they all come to an end. And it's disappointing. We can't relive it. It's happened. I said at the very beginning that it was going to be quite difficult to, uh, to follow some of the things that I said because the reason being is that I'm, I'm working on a process. Um, uh, unlike, I know that Jim is looking at a book itself and working through. I know he's got to about the third verse of chapter one by now. Um, but he's working through a book and it's easier to follow that. And it's easier to follow perhaps the life of somebody as you go through uh, all the things that happen. But uh, but I said it's going to be hard because I'm following a process. What I didn't realise was going to be difficult was you don't understand English. (laughs) That's made it really, really hard here. Nonetheless, at least you'll go away and and, uh, if you remember nothing else, you'll know that catching a crab is actually a rowing expression. And you might forget everything else, but you'll remember some of the English expressions. So, hey, there you go. So, what are you going to think then? Let's just think about that process. Because I believe that's how God works. God works in a plan. He doesn't work in isolation. I'm going to use that as perhaps a, a strange example. This is a summary of the feasts. There are in total seven feasts. And um, when you start to have a look at them, they're really quite interesting. As you can see there, there's a cluster. There's a cluster at the beginning, which is around March time, of unleavened bread, Passover and first fruits. Then there's that one in the middle, which is the, uh, the Feast of Pentecost or weeks. And then there's those clusters at the ends of the year which is Feast of Atonement, of Tabernacles, and of Trumpets. And those are the seven. But actually, let's have a little look at them in a little bit more detail. Let's just start off by having a look at the Feast of Passover. What happens at the Feast of Passover? At the Feast of Passover, um, they take uh, the firstborn lamb and they kill it. They eat parsley and lettuce, symbolising hyssop which of course was daubed on the doorpost, but was also handed across to Jesus on the cross. There are three loaves which are taken, and when we think of three, and we think of the crucifixion, interestingly enough, it is always the middle loaf which is taken first. They use bitter herbs, which is the bitterness of persecution, and there are four cups, which go through the whole idea of sacrifice. I put to you that the Feast of Passover is not just retrospective, but actually it looked forward. It looked forward to the time of Christ's sacrifice. The next feast 
is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread went on for seven days. Seven, of course, symbolizing perfection, completeness. Unleavened, well, unleavened, of course, as we know, means separate, taking away from corruption. I put to you that actually the Feast of Unleavened Bread also had a forward-looking symbolic action as well. It was looking forward to Christ's life. And the third feast around that period of time is the Feast of Firstfruits. Now the Feast of Firstfruits celebrated the time of harvest, of harvesting the barley. The priests would go out and put three rings out in the field and they would then take those three areas and use whatever was in those three rings and celebrate the first fruits of the, of the harvest of the barley. And of course, we know in the scripture that the Lord Jesus Christ, from his resurrection, is the first fruits from the dead. So I therefore put to you that this has symbology as well. So what we've got here is those first three feasts symbolising Christ's life, Christ's death, and Christ's resurrection. So if you move on then and have a look at that feast that stands alone, that, that feast of Pentecost or that feast of weeks, what happens is that this was at the time of the completion of the harvest. And during this feast, it was... Uh, uh, two loaves were used of leaven bread. How strange. Leaven, of course, symbolising sin. So here we have a situation of two loaves, and I put it to you there were two because one symbolised the Jews and one symbolised the Gentiles. So what you have here is you have a situation of the completion of the harvest, the leaven bread symbolising sin of both the Jews and the Gentiles. I put to you now, very briefly, that this is about you and me, Christ's chosen ones. That's what the symbology is of this feast. This is all about you and me. And that is between and following the Passover, first fruits, and unleavened bread, the time of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And then it's you, it's you and me, it's Christ's own. And so we move on to the time of October. And the first feast that we have there is the Feast of Trumpets. The harvest is now completed. Absolutely finished. The trumpets are blown. And those trumpets which are blown in Jerusalem are two ram's horns and they are made from the silver that was taken from the atonement money. And it heralds redemption. And then we think about that passage in Thessalonians when there is the trumpet call of God. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ is returning. And I would suggest that the Feast of Trumpets has that other symbology of Christ's return. And then of course we have what most would say was the most important feast of the year which was the Day of Atonement. And that Day of Atonement is of course all about the covering and, and all about um, the, the high priest who actually went into the holy place on five separate occasions. He changed his clothes five different times. 
And all of that, of course, as we read in Hebrews, has now been annulled. It's gone. It's finished. Why? Because the ultimate day of covering is now upon us. When corruptible puts on incorruptible. That's the ultimate day of atonement, of Christ's covering for you and for me. And then the final feast. The final feast is the Feast of Tabernacles, of booths. And that was the time when uh, originally the, the children of Israel would take pines, they would take olives, they would take uh, palms, willows and myrtle, and they would build these little booths and they would live in them for a whole week. And this is seven days. Perfection. Completion. And this is a time of a perfect dwelling place. This is the time of Christ's kingdom. So what's the point of me telling you all that? What was the purpose of me going through all that? How many times have I looked at each of these feasts individually? So many. How many times do we understand and appreciate that this is part of a process, of a plan, of a big picture? And I would suggest that that's how it fits in. The feasts actually are just like our lives. The past, which was Christ's life, today, which is our life, and the future, which is our future life in the kingdom. It's a process. And that's what I've tried to be going through this week. But all of this fits in. Our lives on their own, in isolation, actually are a bit meaningless. They have greater meaning when we understand the process, the plan, just like it is with the feast. It gives a greater breadth, a greater understanding to it. You see, Jonah, sorry, Job wrote these words. He said this, My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle, and they come to an end without hope. I despise my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone. My days have no meaning. Our situation in isolation is meaningless. Why? Because the cards go back in the box. That's it. It's finished. But when it's part of the process, when it's part of the whole plan, our life all of a sudden becomes dynamic, becomes completely meaningful. Our lives are the Feast of Pentecost. There it is in the middle. We look back at Christ's life, his death and his resurrection. And it is because of that that it gives meaning to our lives today and enables us to look forward to those feasts of trumpets, of atonement, and of booths. The time of, of the kingdom. And so that's why our lives have significance. So, brothers and sisters, when we leave here today, I'm going to ask you that question. How has this week changed your life? Has it been good fun? Yeah, it's been great fun. But is that all? You know, has it just been a holiday? Because I'll tell you what, you could have gone to Las Vegas. 
but you didn't, you came here. So, what's the difference? You know, G.K. Chesterton, whom you might know, G.K. Chesterton was a Christian. And he was uh, interviewed on, uh, on Desert Island Discs. Now, Desert Island Discs, as you may have heard of, is basically you're put on Desert Island and you're asked, what music would you like to take with you? And then they go through and say, I'd like this song or this song. And you're also asked, what piece of luxury item would you like to take with you? Oh, I'd like to take this. And you're also asked, which book would you like to have with you? Now, when G.K. Chesterton was actually interviewed, and they said, uh, so, you know, what would you like to, um, uh, what book would you like to have with you? It was obvious. The guy was a Christian. So, obviously, he was obviously going to choose this, wasn't he? They said, so, Mr. Chesterton, what book would you like to take with you as you are on this desert island? And he thought for a while. And he said, I would like to take with me Thomas's practical shipbuilding. I said, well, why do you want to do that? He said, I don't want to be informed. I don't want to be entertained. I want to be saved. And that's the same for you and me. You just want to be informed and entertained. You could read any book you like. But if you want to be saved, then we take this and we put it into our lives, into action. If we've just come here to be entertained and informed, I tell you what, it's pointless. But if we want to be saved, we're going to take this and use it. And that's the challenge for you and for me. The thing is, is that we are stewards. That's what we've recognised this week. But we are stewards of time. When I was with the, uh, the teenage group, we talked as to, about recreation and using recreation. And I said to them, actually, you know, you've been given a gift. And the gift is time. And I went round and I said, what God has done is he's actually put a sticker on your head. And only he can read the sticker. And on your head here, I said to this kid, you, you, you've got 70, because that's the number of years that you've got on this earth. God knows that, you don't. And I went round, there's 70 and 69 and 73, and I came to this kid, and you've got 35. <laughs> he was like, he hated me. <laughs> All week he hasn't talked to me. And he's been like really upset about it. And that's it. We've all been given that allocation of time, that gift of time, and that we have to be stewards of. And as we said, our, our, our responsibility is to redeem it. It's, it's one of those situations, isn't it, that it is gone. We, we, can't, we can't get it back. It's happened. It's a perishable commodity. We have to use it. So, as we leave here, what are we going to do? How are we going to use what we've discovered from Murray, what we've discovered from Jim, what I've talked about, what we've discovered from our brothers and sisters? Because if we don't use it, it is pointless. You know, I, I was watching um, some of the little kiddies coming, coming out of their class a couple of days ago. And uh, 
What they had, uh, had done is, I think it was Jonah and the whale, because they brought this thing out with them, which was a, it looked like a blue shoebox with um, a piece of paper coming out the top of it. I assumed that was the whale, and I watched one of the parents. This little kitty came up really happy about it and said, look what I've done, mummy. And mummy took it and said, that's lovely. What is it? And the little kitty said, well, it's the whale from Joan and the whale. And mummy said, of course it is. Darling, it's fantastic. Do you know what? That's just how it is with God, with you and me. What we do is we make this crummy-looking whale. And God doesn't ever say, what have you done? He doesn't expect us to make this wonderful sculptured-looking whale, just like the mother didn't expect a beautiful-looking whale from her child. And she never said, that's useless. You as parents, when your child gives you something, when they're little like that, you don't say, that is absolutely rubbish. You don't say that. You take it and you say, that's fantastic. You give them lots of encouragement. That's what parenthood is about. And God looks at our completely feeble efforts when we leave here. And he says, hey, that's great. That's really, really good. And so, he encourages us. And from here today, therefore, we should not be put off by thinking, goodness me, I don't think it's going to be good enough what I'm going to do. It won't be. It, we're going to make a crummy looking whale. But God loves it. He loves the look of that whale. And so, from here, we should be motivated to take some steps. Or else it's pointless us being here. Do you know what? Peter really understood that. And that's why the first letter of Peter is so significant. Because what he's done, as I, as I, as I harp back, what he did is he, at the very beginning, it's, it's, it's got five chapters. There's a very little bit talking about our situation, strangers and aliens in the land. Our status, we have been saved by grace. Our response and our attitude. And then, for about almost four chapters, he talks about our responsibilities, the things that we should do. Peter, who had lived with Christ, he realised that actually we have lots of responsibilities. We have to go out and do certain things. How did he learn that? Let's have a look. Let's have a look from Matthew chapter 14. You know, it's a great blessing that, that we have the letter of Peter which reflects his experiences in life with the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 14. And it's verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, 
They were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and, beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me, and immediately... Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? It's evening. Started off as being evening. For those of you who have been to Israel, you know how long evening lasts. It's about three minutes. Um, You can actually see the sun. You watch it and the sun goes down. Like You can actually watch it. It's amazing. Evening is a very short period of time. It's from about quarter past six to about twenty past six. That's it. It's very quick. So we know exactly what the time was when Jesus dismissed them. And he went up to the mountain to pray when he was alone. And then he comes to them. When? He comes to them during the fourth watch. That's about 3 a.m. in the morning. You're talking here around about nine hours. They've been working for nine hours across Lake Galilee. And Jesus comes to them. Now, the thing is, is that... When we read this passage here, we, we constantly refer it, and I do, to Peter's failure. Absolutely. Look at him. The thing is, is what does he do? Peter sees Jesus and says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. So that impulsive individual has learnt a little bit here. He checks with Jesus. And Jesus says, yeah, come. And off he goes. And... Hey, it's Peter's failure, isn't it? Yet there he goes and he drops. I put it to you, this is not about Peter's failure. It's about 11 other people who avoided failure. What are you and me? Are we those people who stay in the boat? Because I can absolutely guarantee you this one thing. You can't walk on water unless you get out of the boat. And that's the motivation, hopefully, that this week has actually provided for you and me. That we actually do something. It's really interesting, you know. At Newbury Ecclesia, um, we were talking, we we had a big discussion, and we were talking about this very passage. And they were saving up to um, build their hall. And they needed £200,000. And they had collected £130,000. And they're saying, oh, you know, we can't go ahead with it because we still need another £70,000. And at the end of this discussion, they turned around and they said, you know what, we're never going to have £200,000 enough to build this hall if we don't get off and start building it. Within eight months, after they started building it and they got out of the boat and started walking on the water, they'd got £200,000. And that's how God works. He can't do anything with you and me unless we actually get out of that boat. And I love that last bit there where it says in the end there, um, you of little faith, in verse 31, you of little faith, he said, why on earth did you try and get out the boat? No, he doesn't say that. He says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Jesus didn't tell him off for having a go. Jesus told him off for actually doubting. 
It's not going to be good enough. It's not going to be a beautifully sculptured whale. But you're not going to walk on water unless you and I get out of the boat. So, what happens then? Well, when he starts to to sink, and when he saw the wind in verse 30, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. I always wonder how far he got. Let's say the boat was over there where that wall is. Sorry, where Jesus is, where that wall is. And here he is, he gets out the boat. I don't know how far he got. Let's say he gets to about here. And then he starts looking down. And he realises, goodness me, what would you do? Would you start going, I'm off, going back to that boat? But he didn't. He turned and he looked to Jesus. And he said, Jesus, you saved me. And isn't it great in verse 31 where it says, immediately, right there, Jesus didn't say, I'll wait until you get up to your neck and then I'm going to save you. No, he didn't say that. It says, and immediately, Jesus was there. But he knew Jesus was going to be there because he turned to him. And that's the issue. Do you know what? The Lord is a whole lot closer than you and I think. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever been to the Vatican in Rome. If ever you are in Rome, go there. It's really interesting when you go inside the Vatican. There's a big, big queue, unless you are like some of you here have told me, you can actually jump the queue, but you can get in there. When you get in there, into the Sistine Chapel, go into the Sistine Chapel and look up, and you will see the phrase, the, the, the ceiling, do you call it phrase? Okay, the ceiling painting, um, and the, done by Michelangelo. And uh, have a look at the one in the middle. The one in the middle is the very famous one. It's actually much smaller than you think. It's the one of creation, of God reaching. Yeah, a man almost nonchalantly sitting there. It looked at Adam supposedly just being created. Just have a look at it. And even if you don't ever go to the Vatican and into the Sistine Chapel, have a look at a picture of it, and you will see actually there's a gap it's a very 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 slight gap of God when he's stretching it's almost like God is stretching every sinew and there's man nonchalantly leaning back with his hand like that and you can see that if man just lifted his finger he would touch God but there's a gap it's a very small gap and it's as if the Lord is closer than you think and all you've got to do is just lift that finger and he's there and what does Jesus say? he says I will never leave you I will never ever forsake you he is always there for us, for you and me so when we're trying something it, it isn't going to go right we're going to be thinking but immediately Jesus will be there the thing is, is that we forget that I'll now tell you about another picture. Um, this picture is actually a, a book. It's a book of pictures. It's a great book. I love it. It's called Where's Wally? Now, I love Where's Wally. I love Where's Wally because there are no words in it. <laughs> and that suits me just fine. So, it's a really interesting book. Because what you do, and some of you are thinking, never heard of it, what is he talking about? Let me explain. What you have to do is, it's like a crowd of people 
and somewhere in there is Wally. Waldo. Oh dear. You've got it wrong, okay? <laughs> Where's Waldo? It doesn't sound good, all right? Where's Waldo? Am I right? It is Waldo? Waldo, okay. Where's Waldo? You have to find Waldo. And does he look the same? He has glasses, he's got black and red hoop. Red and white hoops, you're right, yeah. You've got to go and find him. Now we're on the same page. Right, so what you do is you open this big crowd, you look for Waldo, and you try and find him. And it takes hours. It's great fun. Let me tell you, I was actually in Turkey last year, and I saw it didn't say either Waldo or Wally, because it was written in Turkish, but I knew what it was. And actually, I started to read it. Why? Because there was no words. You can do it in any language. It's a great book. The thing is, however, is that if Waldo had just appeared on every page, just there on his own, it would not have been a very popular book. It required the reader to go and find him, to look a little bit. And that's what we do in life. We have to just look for Jesus, because he's always there. It just requires you and me to go looking for him. The trouble is, is that we expect Jesus to appear on the road to Damascus. Actually, he appears on the road to Emmaus. He's there. We just sometimes don't recognise him. And Peter did. Peter, when he says to you and me, hey, husbands do this, wives do this, slaves do this, masters do this, when he's telling us to do all those things, he's saying, you're not on your own. The Lord is there with you. Turn, if you would, then to, uh, to John chapter 21, because this is Peter realising how great it is to be close to the Lord. John chapter 21. Um, you know the situation... Uh, where Jesus now is appearing to his other disciples. And uh, in verse 3, I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, well, we'll go with you. So the eight of them, off they went. They went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Oh, that's happened before, isn't it? Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples didn't realise that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? How interesting, because Jesus already got fish. No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And then the disciple, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. I always wonder, why on earth would you wrap the outer garments on you? Perhaps it's because he actually walked on the water. I don't know. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. 
And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. And Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. I always find that a really interesting passage. Why? Let's just think about it. Here it is, they've caught all these fish. And there's eight of them in this boat. And what does it say? It was so full that they couldn't actually haul the net in. And then actually what it then says is that they had to drag the net behind them as they got closer and closer to the shore. However, when Jesus says, bring the fish you've just caught, it says, Simon Peter, on his own, climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. Wow! You know what it's like when you've got fish um, which are in a net and they are aided by the buoyancy of the water. It is a whole lot easier to drag that net in the buoyancy of the water. But here is Simon Peter on his own, pulling that net, and actually he takes it out of the water and drags it over to Jesus. How did he do that? I don't know. But perhaps it's a little bit of a case of a lesson for you and me. That the closer you are to Jesus, the greater things are possible. And that's what Peter realised. That with Jesus, great things are possible. Have a look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and uh, verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now, much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Ah, there you go. We should be working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Good. Actually, what it says is it says working out. It doesn't say working for. It doesn't say work towards. It says working out, which means completing. The salvation that has been given to us by grace, we should now be completing. And how should we do that? We should be working it out. We should be doing things. Why? Because in verse 13 it says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. That's it, brothers and sisters. It's God working in us. This is dynamic in terms of this life. But what he requires us to do is to step out of the boat first of all. Naaman washed in the, in, in, in the Jordan seven times. And after he'd done that, then God healed him. And when God healed wasn't it wonderful when God healed him? He didn't give him back skin like mine. He gave him back skin which was like that of a new baby's. That's how God works. A remarkable miracle. So when we take the first step, God works remarkable miracles with us. Why? Because it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So, brethren and sisters, this week, what have we thought about? We thought about our situation, our situation where the cars go back in the box and it all seems very depressing. But if you look at that in isolation, it is. The thing is, it is part of a process. 
our situation is just part of God's big plan because he says absolutely you're down here you're hopeless down here you haven't made it but I've already prepared for you because what I've already done with Jesus in those three feasts for you the process now is to make a step and just believe just trust trust that my grace is sufficient for you that's what we sang last night that's all you've got to trust and now we are in here we are in a paradigm of grace a new scenario that is our new status and our response our response is well what's our attitude our attitude should be like that piece of clay moldable our attitude should be I want to go off and do things because of what has already been done for you and for me God's given me that opportunity he saved me by grace and as we leave here so we should be motivated to do certain things you know I've loved this week it's been really great for me it's been great for me because it's really refocused me not just because of what has been taught by Jim although I haven't heard much of Jim although Sally's been telling me all the things that Jim's been saying what Morrie's been saying what I've learned for myself but from you I gave the exhortation last, um, last Sunday and I said that this is what it's about this is a unique relationship that we have it's koinonia, it's fellowship we are fellows in a ship together and that's wonderful and it's been absolutely fantastic for me but you know we have a responsibility to help each other with the teens what I did with them on one session is I I got them outside and I got some of them just to lie down and just lie down on their back and I wanted, got them to fold their arms and I said right what I want you to do is I want you to get up you're not allowed to put your legs underneath you just try and get up none of them could get up they tried as hard as they could until one of them shuffled his way backwards as he was laying flat on the ground shuffled his way backwards and met up with somebody else who was also shuffling backwards and then they got back to back and started to walk towards each other and that way they got up and when other people saw it that's what everybody else did they shuffled back to back and they all got up and now they could actually get on and do something that's what this week's been about for me it's about on my own I just lie there and wriggle around I need you to actually push up against so I can stand up and I can get on and do things because when I'm doing things that's when God works and when God is working let me tell you brethren and sisters that really makes this life worth living.